You're listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast, discussing all aspects of precision and long-range rifle shooting. This episode is brought to you by STS Steel Targets, premium shooting targets and accessories. And now, over to your hosts. Well, hello and welcome to the Precision Shooting Podcast. My name is Rusty and this is episode number 62. Is that right, Andrew? Yep. <laughs> Excellent, mate. Glad you were on board. Speaking of which, uh, this episode is brought to you by STS Targets. I know all of us in the room have used those. Thanks very much to STS. Um, I'm sure we'll bring that up again later. Uh, but with me in the room this evening, uh, to my right, uh, Andrew, who you've already heard from. Good evening. <laughs> Good evening, mate. Thought you were going to do it again. And over there is uh, Mr. Uh, Mug Signer himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am signing more tonight. Yeah. I'll get my special gold pen out. Excellent. Well, I've got a story about the last one you signed. And uh, joining us as well, uh, now make sure I'm correct in this, uh, from the South Australian F-Class team. Yes. Jason, how you going? Good, mate. How are you? Yeah, very good, mate. Do we give out your full name or is that, you know? Oh, that's fine. Yeah, Jason Nestling is, uh, has joined us this evening um, and he is here to chat about some topics with us. Thanks very much for taking some time and joining us here. Thanks for having me. No problem. So, um, Greg, back to the the mug story. I sent a mug over to Jared. Yep. Uh, you must have signed it so hard it ended up in three pieces, mate. Yeah, righto. <laughs> so, <laughs> I did let him know it was an Ikea mug and you just need an Allen key and go back together, but... Um, yeah, yeah. Stuff, stuff needs to be strong to be my signature. <laughs> <laughs> it's got the weight of the weight of your uh, your brilliance resting on it. It's um, yeah, clearly not packed enough to uh, contain such strength and power. You've probably nailed it there. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad, mate. I'm glad. Oh, good. And um, and how how have our couple of weeks been, gentlemen? Anything exciting stories to tell? No. We're an exciting, exciting <laughs> bunch, aren't we? Excellent. I remember one episode where this happened and uh, I asked three questions. We got zero responses. So um, we're going to try and improve that. I've thought about guns a lot. Good. Yeah, Good. A lot, yeah. At least that's a response. Yeah. Jason, have you been, you been shooting? Uh, yes, uh, except for last week because we had 40 mile an hour winds at the range and they were worried the target frames were going to snap. So. Okay. The shoot got cancelled. Maybe, maybe you use STS targets. Yeah, there's, maybe. There's the plug. Yeah. You're welcome, Sean. <laughs> they don't they don't fall over in forty mile an hour winds. Anyway, sorry. Uh, yeah, so they pulled the pin on that one. But yeah, been shooting pretty much every week out at lower light. And, yeah, uh, excellent. Yeah, and yeah. what? Uh, which club is it that you're a member of? Uh, Phoenix Target Rifle Club. Yeah, brilliant. Mm. And uh, and um, perhaps tell us a little bit about Phoenix. Okay, uh, Phoenix is a uh, obviously a target rifle club. We shoot F class and uh, TR or target rifle, where they use peep sights. Mm-hmm. Uh, long range, I guess you would call it. It starts the uh, minimum distance three hundred meters, and we yep. can go right back to eleven hundred if we wish. Mm-hmm. Regularly shoot out to nine hundred though. Yep, uh, that's the state uh, rifle range. Uh, Governed by uh, South Australian Rifle Association. Yeah, cool. um, yeah. yeah, good. And and how long have you been shooting there for? Uh, three years now, which has flown by. Hasn't it just? Yeah. Wow, that's. Uh, I remember when you first started out there, and uh, yeah, wow, three years ago. Yep. That's full on. Yeah, nice, mate. Nice. Yes. Greg, you look concerned. I did get out. I think. I don't think I mentioned <laughs> it last. 
Yeah, no, it was a couple of weeks ago. I yeah. think it was um, just before the last podcast. Yeah, I got out and shot a couple of foxes with the thermal. So, um, did I mention that last podcast? I think you were, you were heading out. I think I the last out. podcast you hadn't been out and you were, you were excited about getting out yeah. in the coming weeks. Yeah, yeah, I'm always excited about getting out. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, I got out and, and the foxes were on the move. It was fantastic. Uh, they're, they're pairing up at the moment, so there's a lot of movement. Yep. And uh, yeah, I, I decked two and you yeah, missed one. Unfortunately, no. How does so that happen it, with a thermal, mate? I thought that was a perfect scenario. I just blew it. <laughs> Probably okay. you, you record it so you can look at the recording and you can see, oh, I've pulled that one. So <laughs> yeah, you can sort of analyse your disappointment a little bit. Yeah, um, right. But yeah, no, that's it was a fair way out. But um, yeah, I should have got it. Well, speaking of analysing performance, uh, I got sent something this week. Uh, this is from Mantix X. Or Mantis X, sorry, um, which is a little training system. So I'm going to have a bit of a play with this over the next sort of month or two, um, which is a little device that attaches onto like a, a Picatinny rail and you tell it sort of where on the gun it is, up and down, left, right, which way it's facing, all that sort of gear. And then it, it interfaces to uh, an app on your phone and it will record like just as you're taking a shot and then afterwards and see what movement and stuff is there and how much you keep it on target and, s- and such. So I've had a little bit of a play with it. Um, uh, but I'm interested to see. It was it was just dry firing, and interested to see, you know, whether it. It told me I shot some good groups apparently, but I don't. You know, I didn't actually shoot any groups, so hard to see. You know how accurate and how spot on it is. So next time we take it out for a live fire. In fact, I might even take it this weekend up to Darwin and chuck it on the rifle and see what it says. Because. Um, uh, Maybe I could use this to dispute my score and say, I oh, know my my um, <laughs> training system said that I score I, I hit that well, so I'm, I'm yeah. I'd like the points, please. <laughs> um, so we could try that. But anyway, next time I actually get out to a sort of a hundred meter range and try it out and see what the groups come up to compared to what it's telling me they're shooting like. So um, anyway, th- that will be interesting to see. So I've been told, been seen some good feedback actually. We got um, from some guys in Instagram saying it was really good, really useful. So we'll see. See how it goes. So could you put that on a rifle and just have someone like hold on target and just see what their breathing pattern looks like and how their rifle's moving and test their position in that way? Or is it only from a firing? I, I think it's only from a firing, Greg. I think yeah. it's only sort of when you pull the trigger, it records prior and afterwards and, and we'll show you some level of movement, but I think it's determined how long it will do that. Yeah. To be fair though, I haven't um, I haven't played with it much to see whether or not I can change that time, like it give it more time to, yeah, yeah. to record that or not. That's, that's quite useful. We are talking about before the podcast, but in, in the Army days, in, in the WETS ranges, that I think it stands for Weapon Training Simulation System, I think that's right, but uh, it had a coaching mode and you could, okay. you could go to coaching mode and bring up a screen next to the target that actually showed what the barrel was doing mm-hmm. and you could see basically the movement of the barrel where someone was breathing just get them yeah, relaxed yeah. and you can see whether they build up their position right right or wrong so yeah, yeah it could perfect. be could be quite useful mm. from a training perspective yeah so interesting to see um how that goes and whether or not that uh whether or not it helps whether or not it re- relays good data yeah hopefully it does because um i've seen lots of this sort of stuff you know um for pistol but rarely does it translate across to rifle so i'm excited to see something that may be really useful for rifle you mm. have to report back. Mm. Well, mm. I certainly will. And uh, yeah, the other th- the other exciting thing is uh, off to Darwin tomorrow. Then you're competing, are you? 
Yeah. Oh, look out. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Not perhaps in ideal circumstances, which uh, I'm sure will become apparent over the podcast we do up there, no doubt. But um, anyway, we're going to get up there and give it a crack. So we'll. Uh, oh, awesome. Yeah, we we'll, mm. should certainly have good fun to do it. Um, yep. And if not, all I will attempt to do is sabotage Butters. Uh, and he's not competing, but just in general, sabotage Butters for the entire yeah, weekend. Nice. Um, that's my backup plan, which I may <laughs> actually enact as plan A, um, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> So it sounds much more fun than trying to compete. And it was pretty generous of you, uh, Rusty, to to uh, offer the AI rifle to me when you win it. So yeah, yeah. no, it was podcast prize. It was no, no, to me, yeah. like just but give it to me. The um, me, me, me. <laughs> do you well, know Greg, what was? You know, what was more more generous. Greg's offer of a couple of AI rifles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he did offer a couple of AI rifles to everyone who appears on the podcast. Ugh, why not? Uh. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> good, good Jace. Yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to well maybe three, Greg. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> three eggs. Well you well you got your wallet out, mate. Mm. Right, hey, all on visa, interest free. <laughs> <laughs> good. Good. So Jace, I guess we brought you in tonight uh to chat about reloading. Yep. Um it's one of the you know, the, the major parts of our sport uh, that often oh, isn't the sexy part of it. It's not pulling the trigger. It's not going bang or ding or whatever, you know, whatever else aspect of it. But it's a, a pretty critical component within it. And, um, you know, notice within F-Class, uh, it's it's th- there's a, a massive school of thought around it from uh, from you know, what you guys do. And, and any, any sort of serious competition shooter is, is into their reloading. Yeah, that's right, mate. Um, we uh, there's quite a few different ways that that different F class shooters go about their reloading and mm-hmm. uh, and load development, um, and lots of schools of thought on uh, precision scales and measuring kernel accuracy <laughs> and not not worrying about that kind of thing either. And uh, yeah, so we can probably talk a bit about that, I suppose. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's. Um, we we did get a couple of questions on Instagram. By the way, I'm not sure if we've actually announced that we've got an Instagram uh, on the podcast. So, um, I'd like to take this uh, moment to officially announce that we uh, have an Instagram for the podcast, which is a Precision Shooting Podcast. However, you find that on Instagram, I don't know how these <laughs> things work. <laughs> I just press record and hope for the best. Um, but anyway, we've got one, and we did get a couple of questions for it. So, um. One, uh, this is James, would like to know opinions on single kernel accuracy for precision reloads, which is something you just uh, touched on there. Yep. Jase, if you want to talk to that, let us know what you think about that. All right. Well, in the testing that that we do, and uh, we're not talking about extreme long range, but we're talking, you know, 900 to 1200 metres when we do F-class long range, mm-hmm. we have done uh, or found doing ladder tests that you can have a node uh, in a ladder test that can be up to 0.6 of a grain wide. And if right. you, if you know how much a kernel weighs, not, it, not much, <laughs> not, not, not even uh, probably a quarter of a, of a 0.1 of a grain. Um, yeah, I guess that, that would be dependent on the powder too. Yeah. But what it, what it indicates is that often there's a fairly, well, relatively wide, scope for variation in the actual powder charge that can still give you good results and you know measuring down to that tiny degree would not necessarily give you any noticeable 
gain? Is that sort of that, that's exactly right? And I mean, we're we're looking at uh, accuracy or aiming for um, sub half minute accuracy at any distance that we would shoot normally for ten or twenty shots. So um, to be able to do that and and not have to measure to the kernel, um, and it's proven. Um, I would say unless you're shooting extreme long range, uh, you know, 1,500 metres plus, then it's probably not that important um, to measure that small. Mm. I guess that would also rely on the actual grains of powder, individual grains being the same size and weight, which I, I don't think they necessarily are. There'd no. be a percentage variation in them as well. So That's right. Yeah. Andrew, have you, you've done probably the most extreme long range shooting out of any of us. Have you... Has that been a consideration in your reloading for that? No. I, I, I said I've basically you know worked a load up, and again, like Jay said, and particularly with the bigger stuff, you've generally got a wider, what I found to be a wider sort of band that will, will be acceptable for the load anyway. Okay, yep. Um, again, I, I was about to ask you, Jay, what, you know, I don't consider that level, you know, of counting grains to be a, important at all, but what would you consider would be the, the bigger influencing factors? Um, as far as uh, measuring your powder weights or... No, as far as being contributing factor to, to what is a good, accurate load for you know, long-range shooting. Okay. Um, you, consistency in, in pretty much everything you do, um, powder weight is only a small part of it. And once you've tuned to a, uh, a load to a powder charge, obviously you can have a variation in weighing. It's not going to affect it, but you want to make sure that neck tension, um, that's key. Uh, it has to be consistent. Um, I batch projectiles uh, by um, bearing surface or base to ogive if you don't have a, a tool to measure bearing surface. Um uh, and case prep, um, uniformity uh, inside uh, flash hole deburr, um, uh, primer pocket uniform, trim all to the same length, um, and all that kind of stuff. It all adds up to the 1% things that you've got to do. I neck turn my brass as well, mm-hmm. um, so that they're all to the same th- uh, thickness. And try and buy everything in as big of batches as you can, so you're not using different uh, batches of everything. So, so I guess the long and short of it is, you wouldn't say there's any one particular factor that you would consider to be more critical than the others. I personally, I don't sort of think about it that way. I just try to reduce variation as much as I can in everything that I do, uh, and it all adds up to working well in the end. So, um, yeah. I guess a few of the topics that you've just opened up or hinted to there, we certainly delve into a little bit more. Um, back to what you said, the interesting to see that you don't go to that level of, of getting tweezers out and pulling kernels out and doing that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm similar. I generally go on to sort of point one is usually what I'm chasing. The only kernels I'm interested in, the 11 secret herbs and spices from Colonel <laughs> Sanders. That's about it. Yeah. But everyone's nodding. Good. Uh, enjoy our food. The other question there was... Um, about um now i've got herbs and spices on the brains that's what i was going to say the other question was about powder scales and and different types of scales and such what do you use yourself and what are you sort of seeing and like i actually use a charge master Mm -hmm. Uh, i've done the straw mod 
Yep. Uh, but I, my straw mod isn't just in the actual tip. My I've used the whole straw and filled up the whole tube. Okay. Um, which I can give you some photos of that at some stage <laughs> that you can put up on so people can have a look at it. Nice. Yep. Um, and just uh, adjusted the speed that it throws it at so it's a bit slower towards the end. And, you know, I can load 100 rounds and I might get one overcharge out of 100. So it's pretty good. Um, I don't even use a... a separate scale to check weights or anything like that everything yep. just you gets just thrown out of there yep and you found it found it fairly consistent enough uh what i generally do is throw under 0.1 okay um just because of that occasional overthrow and then i'll just trickle up by hand until it just ticks over to the actual charge weight that i want uh, and then i'll just dump them i don't don't worry about double checking the weights or anything like that there's no need yeah right yep yeah, nice. And have you done any testing where you've compared the Charge Master to anything else? Not to any other um, digital scale. Um, I've got a, a manual uh, RCBS scale there that I use for weighing um, things sometimes when I can't wait for that to warm up. So, yep. um, but it, they're both just as good as each other. Um, it's just a bit quicker with the Charge Master. Mm. Mm. Now, there's a I, I, the name of it escapes me, but uh, one of the one of the guys that we've had on the show before, Bronte, he has a has a different scale or trickler setup. I, so yeah, I can't remember either. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll attempt to look it up. Not talking about yes. Prometheus. No. no, I've seen a Prometheus. That's uh, pretty impressive. It's like a mm. medical scale. Yeah, it's a it's different a, type. It's a different type time. of scale to you know the what sort of the Charge Master type scales are. Yeah, Bronte explained it. Probably better than I ever would. But yeah. Did he do that on on the air with the different um, the strain gauge versus the other type of gauge? I think like the force restoration type. Yeah. He did he do it on air? I can't recall. I don't remember. But I've got to go back and listen to it now because I've, I've tried to explain that a couple of times and forgotten the appropriate words. Well, basically, what he he's obviously looked into it to a fair degree, and what he indicated is that the the predominant type of digital scale, like on the Charge Masters, it it will. It's not necessarily giving you the exact reading of what it actually is. Yeah. Um, I can't recall the the brand of the the one he has got, but the the guy that uh, that makes these particular units, it's using a, a standalone scale where he's you know, basically made a trickler that's you know run off a belt, so it's you know powered. You know, it's not a not an all in one unit. It looks a little sort of delicate, but Bronte indicated it was quite quick and considerably more accurate. I think it was accurate to second decimal place not just one so right. what would be interesting would be to to run direct comparison with everything else the same like all your brass prep yeah. everything the same mm-hmm. and load a batch on charge master for example and load a batch on this this different setup and, and yep. just see because that i mean i guess that comes down to that thing of once you've done particularly a ladder test and you've got that that band as you said which can be quite wide mm. if you're falling within that it's not necessarily going to be a noticeable or measurable variable yeah, that's right. On target, anyway. Yeah, it's a fair point. I know Sean from uh, from STS has done some testing of of the Charge Master versus other scales, and and the Charge Master showed uh, inconsistency, but within a certain parameter, within the parameter they they committed to, you know, with the point one sort of variation. So interesting, and that would be an interesting test to to do it. But I guess the way you guys are going about load development, which we'll certainly get into shortly buffers against those sort of inconsistencies. That's right, yeah. Mm. Some of the other um, the other aspects 
um, that you're looking for for getting your loads down. You talked about um, primer pockets. Yes. About deburring that. So yeah. we we deburr or I deburr the uh, the flash hole. So from mm-hmm. inside the case mouth out into the bottom, um, because the way that they make uh, flash holes in most cases is they broach them, so they push uh, a hardened pin or bit and force it through the base of the case, which obviously can leave a burr on mm. around the inside of the hole. Yeah. So we take that burr off and put a very small chamfer on it so that it's uh, as the primer goes off, the charge from the primer can spread out evenly into the into the powder and not burn up one side of the case first and then around or whatever like that. So um, then, then obviously primer pocket uniform, um, which we basically machine them all this to the same depth. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yep. So when you're talking about the, the actual flash hole itself, you know, presumably, you know, the, the cheaper run of the mill brass is, is punched, but um you guys use, you know, Lapua brass or Norma brass or what what is the general you know, the F class fraternity, what yep. they favour one or the other or in uh, the class of F class, there's classes obviously within that class. I shoot in F class standard, so we all have to use uh, either 308s or 223s, and we all are restricted to projectile weights of uh, 155 grains in 308 and uh, 80 grains in 223. Um, basically, you only got two choices of brass type for 308. You've got the normal large primer stuff, which is available in pretty much every brand, yep. and, and then what I use, which is the Lapua Palmer brass, which is the small primer, small flash hole stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you do still need to... Uh, do that case case prep on that brass. Um, you still get burrs, um, and it will be if you know you might run the uniformer or the uh, deburring tool through ninety cases and get nothing out of them, and then you'll get one that's got it in there. Yeah, right. Okay. And that's the one that'll be a flyer. Um, you don't yep. know that that you might think you've pulled a bad shot or something like that, but it's just reducing that variation. So. Nice. So I think they they dr- they're drilled, but even still, I mean, drilling can leave burrs. Absolutely. So yeah. not necessarily as much as Especially punching. Especially if I was doing the drilling, yeah. it's not a pretty <laughs> not a pretty sight at all. Yeah. No, you still get a bit of material out of them. Even you know, you get a bit of material out of every case, some more than others, and that's the bit that you want to try and eliminate. That one that one that's got the extra like bit a hanging big in it, piece hanging off or yeah. something on the inside. Yep. yep. Bronte got back to me. By the way, that scale is an A and D FX one twenty. I was going to say FX one twenty. Yes. Yeah, with yeah, I was going to say it too, but I yeah, forgot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said that the auto-trickler is called an auto-trickler. Yeah, wow. this guy with an auto-trickler. Inventive name. Yeah. Probably made by a German. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be Das Auto-Trickler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Excellent. Um, very good. So we, we were out last week. Last week? Yeah, last week uh, on a five-day intensive course, um, and one of the things that we we found the guys worked their way out and they end up uh, having a crack at a mile. So two guys shooting it. One guy was using um, my Ruger uh, six-five Creamel, but he was running factory ammo. He was running Hornady with the one forty LDs, and and he was he was shooting. Uh, it's at sixteen hundred and sixty-five meters, and and we were sort of. Yeah, he was really consistent with his wind calls. The winds was uh, quite favourable, let's put it that way. Um, and they were sort of basically deviating high and low, high and low around the target. He did manage to crack one on there, but we virtually measured it, you know, milled the, the, the variation in shots. 
for that for that gentleman. And then another guy, Paul, uh, was shooting a 300 Win Mag, and he was um, doing the same thing. Again, favourable wind conditions, and he was going high and low, high and low, and getting frustrated because he wasn't hitting the target. So while these guys were doing that, I grabbed their workbooks and, and looked back through their, their data and had a look at their like SDs and their extreme spreads, grabbed the tablet, adjusted, um, and made an additional profile and put that in and worked out, you know, basically that what their their um their two extreme spread velocities would have been. Went out to Dan, who was the other trainer, uh, running it and uh, said, Well what's you know, if you're gonna mill that that variation, what would that be? And he told me, and the variation that he told me that they were hitting high and low basically lined up with where their extreme spreads said they would be hitting the variation between the two extreme extreme spreads. So it was an interesting lesson to see that, like, um, the variation between ammo um, directly, directly correlating back to where they were missing the target. A couple of days later, um, uh, one of the guys, Paul, who was reloading, had, had basically pulled his loads and done a bit of work to his brass, uh, done a bit of work to his powder consistency, and he had then, his, his SD was at 18 uh, feet per second. And on the the last day on the Friday, he managed to put nine out of eleven shots on target. Just quickly there, Rusty, mm-hmm. his SD was eighteen feet per second before he did all that work. Correct. Sorry, before yeah, to, yeah correct. Eighteen feet per second before he did all that work, and then he he redid it, put three out of five on the mile target, uh, or just over a mile target. Whacked the chronograph on to get some data from it, and did another three shots, and his SD was at seven um, feet per second obviously a huge improvement, and then proceeded to those three shots put on, on the target and then another three shots put on the target as well. And so he, um, as you can imagine, he was fairly happy. <laughs> um, but it was interesting to see that direct relationship between the, the quality of the ammo versus the hits on targets, which is you know, no big surprise, but um, to see it correlate so uh, precisely back to um you know, back to their, their extreme spreads in there, the variation between their ammo. Um, obviously, the gentleman using factory didn't have a choice. That was what he was using and didn't have the the facilities to reload. Um, but Paul, who was uh, able to reload and change some things on the day, that's all he changed, and uh, away he went, did very uh, very well. And what did he actually do differently when he took more care with his ammo? Yeah, so um, one of the things he did is he kneeled his brass, okay, um, and it was two things. He kneeled his brass, and then he admitted to me afterwards that he um, he threw his powder from a powder thrower um, and only measured it one in every 10 or so. So that's what he did before he Correct. redid the ammo, yep. And then when he redid them, he used the charge master we've got down there and measured every one and wouldn't accept anything outside of point one, or outside of what his measurement was. Um, and so, obviously, those two between those two things, and it'll be very hard to quantify which one helped the most, I'm going to guess powder, but um, it was uh, very interesting to see just those changes, a bit more attention to it, increase things significantly. Oh, yeah, there's one thing I was going to ask you before, Jace, was annealing. Do you, you anneal personally? Uh, I don't, because I don't have an annealer. Um, it's a good reason. Yeah, it's a really good reason. Um, but I buy large quantities of brass so that I don't really have to anneal. Like all your brasses at the same 
stage in its life, yes. effectively. Yep. 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 So, and any, uh, if I'm ever loading any projectiles or seating projectiles and one feels different, um, requires more or less force, yep. that gets put aside and gets used for fowlers yep. or yep. ciders or whatever. So, um, they do get pulled and noticed. I still fire them, but they get used up yeah. when, it's, when it doesn't matter, so yep. to speak. Yep. Um, I have got someone who's got an annealer that I'm about to anneal. Uh, the current batch of brass I got, um, but I've also got some new brass that I'm going to start using uh, while that gets done, so I'm not out of uh, out of ammo. Yeah, because that's one that I'd I'd you know, I've gotten a kneeler, um, but I've always wanted to do a sort of a more sort of precise test on on the particular stand deviation effect mm. that has. I mean, I I think it's probably fairly considerable the effect it could have. Okay. Particularly if brass has been fired maybe a couple of two, two three times without yeah. being annealed. Because a lot of people, a lot of people um, put annealing down to longevity of the the case life. Um, yeah, that that wouldn't be my motivation for doing that's it. it. Yeah, that's consistency motiv- of neck tension yeah, would be the main thing, mm. and also you're when you anneal, you're also touching the shoulder. So you're when you're bumping that shoulder back, if you are doing that it stays uh, in the same spot rather than springing back yes so annealed brass will have higher neck tension than unannealed brass because it doesn't spring back after you um uh, when it runs through the the die yeah Yeah. yep Um, but i mean i think the the critical thing is consistency as well i think if you were to measure Mm. you know if you had a batch of brass it would be interesting to check. It would be time-consuming to do it. But if you had, say, cases that were fired twice versus, say, three or four times, what is the hardness of the brass in the neck of those cases? You know, it would vary. I'm sure it would vary because brass work hardens. So yep. the more it's been fired and sized without annealing, the, you know, the harder it will get. Mm. So I, without actually having tested that down to a really sort of fine degree, I think it would be a pretty considerable variable to actually take out of the equation. Yeah, I think um, Brian Litz's last book, he did a bit of testing on annealing, but I just can't remember the outcome. That's all. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, you're right. Any climatic. But, um, Thanks, Greg. That'd be worth a look. <laughs> Even the new guy's giving you a hard time. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Right. Um, yeah, no, and, and, and had I had that book here, I'd grab it out and we could check, but that's... Uh, Currently elsewhere, unfortunately. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, then that and that same book actually, we may as well give it a plug because that same book talks about exactly what you're talking about with deburring the the flash, yeah, um, all flash those elements, and, yeah, and a few things like that, and talks about um, uh, talks about uh, scales as well, I believe, mm. um, and does live round testing with each of those elements, and has a section on rangefinders just for Andrew. Yes, actually, talking about. Uh, Books on reloading. I've yep. got a recommendation for anyone that is looking for literature. I've just got to find the bloody thing. Uh, I think it's Michael McPherson. Yes. Oh, good uh, one. Uh, yeah, I haven't heard should of be him up in that cupboard up there, Jace, yeah. by the way, if you want to uh, reference it. Yeah, I'll just get it. All right. Well, after nearly uh, ripping Andrew's head off, uh, we've managed to grab the book out of the cupboard. <laughs> I don't know why I keep that book locked up. I guess it's that important. That's that's right, isn't it, Jason? It's it that is important. a it is a pretty good book. Uh, it is Michael McPherson or Mike McPherson, uh, metallic cartridge hand loading. Uh, I recommend anyone that wants to buy books about reloading to definitely grab that one. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's very comprehensive, um, but also quite easy to read. Yes, actually, yeah, you don't have to be a reloading genius to uh, to uncover it uh, and get through 
lots of it, but it's got some really in-depth content. Yeah, good book. Mm. Well, excuse me, guys, I'll just read it. <laughs> so, Greg, we're all waiting for you for comment, yeah, but uh, he's, uh, uh, he's I'll just, get back to you after chapter you, one. Okay, <laughs> I promise we'll see you in 10 minutes. Um, Probably 20. <laughs> you'd just pay someone to read it for you, wouldn't and summarise it? <laughs> He's got no comment for that. He's, Sorry. He's quickly, uh, he's qu- um, freelancer.com trying to find someone to read it for him. All right. Yeah, good. Groovy. Looks good. <laughs> it I'll is good book. that one. Thank you. <laughs> I feel loved. That's all right. I've lost, I've lost a book, but I've gained three AR rifles. <laughs> so I feel it's a fair swap. That's a fair trade-off. It's an expensive book. Um, Just letting Ben know I'm still waiting for my Silence of Co. Radius. Just putting it out there. Jason, another question for you that often comes up, um, and obviously for the other guys in the room, um, load development. I know that um, you were talking before and you alluded to some different options and uh, some different ways of going about it. How do you go about it and some of the other things that you've seen? Because there seems to be no end of things. All right, so uh, I do what we call a ladder test, or the I think it's called the ORDET method. Right. Uh, and so basically what you do is you... Uh, you set up a tall target, uh, usually done at 500 meters or further away. Do you uh, get someone to set that up for you? We we set them up in the target frames and have someone pull them and mark each shot. And basically what you do is uh, you load up uh, uh, 18 different charge weights and you fire at the same point on the target and those increased charge weights should climb up the target like a ladder. Yep. Um, what what you, sort of distance? Yeah, sorry. Well, I do mine at 500, 500 metres. Yep. Um, there's guys in America that do them at 1,000 metres, but because of where I shoot at lower light, the house of pain, the, <laughs> the, the wind doesn't really allow for you to do it further yeah. back because it, you get too much crosswind jump and there's a lot of other issues there with the wind yeah, and okay. vertical. So yep. um, basically what you're looking for, the, the shots will start to climb the target and they'll, you, your first few may be spread fa- fairly far apart. Mm-hmm. When you get to a node, at, uh, you'll start to notice that the shots start to get closer together in elevation, and you might get a group of say four or five shots in you know within an inch of each other at a, at 500 meters. Uh, then you'll keep shooting, and you'll get the shots spread apart again as it climbs up. You'll get another group that's close together. So what you do is you go and analyze that and pick uh, say the middle charge weight from each of those smaller groups and uh, you can run those as your load and then and then fine-tune with seating depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. So presumably you would normally pick the, the highest velocity, well, yeah, the highest charge node that you can f- find? No. No? No? No, we, we don't. Does... Now, there's reasons for that and it, it can be dependent on the atmospherics or the weather when you're testing. It, I did my last one... Uh, two or three weeks ago, it was nine degrees. So I did have a node up at, uh, what was it, 47.1 grains start to form. In nine degrees, that's fine, but we shoot in 36 degrees. And in nine degrees, I had no pressure signs. In 36 degrees, I probably won't be able to open my bolt, I wouldn't think. So we tend to go for, for... Maybe not the highest one and maybe one below it. Uh, okay. And it's more usable in all weather conditions then. Just not trying to uh, 
be critical. But if you were to say do a load development in in nine degrees, as you said, and then go with a with the lower node, for example, and then you were to say shoot in twenty degrees or twenty five degree temperature, obviously the velocity is going to be different. So it may then fall outside that node anyway. That's why you don't generally um, when. My last ladder test, I had a node that ran from 45.7 to 46.3 in 0.2 increments. So using that theory, you'd run with Mm 46.1. But 45.9 shoots better. So I go with that, and it gives you more room if the temperature does change. Uh, And, you know, if, if it does change by 20 degrees, that's still going to be in that node. Yeah, well, I guess that depends on the powder you're using, but generally yeah. you guys use ADI powders, is that correct? Yeah, double 208 I'm yeah. using, yeah. Which is renowned for being fairly temperature stable. Yes. Yeah. Do you do much te- um, testing on that temperature stability or, or changes? Um, not really. I mean, if I know it's going to be super hot, I might back off my load because I load, if I'm shooting Saturday, I load Friday night. I don't load a week in advance or anything like that. Yeah. So I might just back it off point one or something like that just to... Allow for that a little bit. Give a buffer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But yeah. you don't you don't do any tests on on no. per degree how much it changes. No. Okay. Yeah. No problem. Um. I guess you're going the other the other option, and you answer my my other question. I was going to ask is if do you sort of load to the temperature a little bit? You may a little. To yeah. Some degree. If it, if it's going to be extreme hot, I mean we mm-hmm. we've got uh, heat rules out there, so if it's going to be over thirty six, we don't shoot. Mm-hmm. Um. But if it is going to be pretty hot, I'll back it off point one. Okay. Not, not not normally more than that though. Sure. Yeah. Just uh, just one quick question. I I have heard this from you know, guys that are you know F class shooters. Generally speaking, they don't tend to chronograph as much as a lot of guys that you know that you know just sort of generally shooting or trying to work up loads or the PRS type shooting. Is it would it be incorrect to say you guys basically work up a load from what you're seeing on target and then you verify that with a chronograph? Yep. So you know you know what sort of drops you're going to be experiencing pretty well um we do run a crony when when we do the ladder test just so we can have a look because part of the finding a node is as aside from what's on the target obviously you will see the velocity taper off or plateau yep um in the node so we're just looking to confirm that at the same time we're not specifically using that for any development we're not shooting you know, thousands of rounds trying to get to a specific velocity. Yeah, you're not, you're um, not chasing a particular... No, yep. but some guys do, um, but I don't think it's important. Velocity, to me, is a, a byproduct of what you're actually getting. As long as it's consistently hitting the same point on the target, it doesn't really matter how fast it's going. Um, within reason, of course, because you don't want to be 400 feet per second slower than the guy next to you because you're going to have a lot more wind on. So, hmm. Well, I guess that's the variable that comes down to you know, your interpretation of what's happening, you know, with flags and whatnot yep. versus, I mean, the, the elevation you can control fairly precisely. That's right. Yeah, Greg's asleep. Good chat, Greg. Good chat. Oh, uh, no, you want me to say anything? I'm liking your input. It's good. Plug some of your companies or something. <laughs> right. Hang on. Let me think about it. <laughs> it's interesting to see. I don't know if we've mentioned on the podcast yet. Um, I sort of feel we haven't, but I, I know we talked about it somewhere. Um, is there was a new uh, video from the Six Five guys recently with Scott Satterley, and he was talking about a ten round load development uh, process. Um, his process, or that particular process, he's talking about, is effectively um, not looking at 
where the bullet goes at all. It's all based on numbers. It's all based on um, on velocities. Not dissimilar to what you're talking about, to look for that flat point where the velocities sort of bend out for a little bit and then you know go back through. So over the course of your 10 rounds, you're seeing where that flat spot in the velocity is, where they don't change too much, and then, and then obviously um, wherever that node is, then loading around that. But he's effectively talking about doing it based on a chronograph reading uh, rather than seeing what groups whereas you, you know, you're talking about going the other way around um, about it so it's interesting to see one of the things that I, I did heavily pick up uh, from his video that his uh, standard deviation was about two feet per second his extreme spread was about four or five um, and so I, I would imagine that that sort of test with that limited um, sample would be only relevant if you could reload that level because if your if your standard deviation was 15 um, you're probably not going to get a true reading across those flat spots because your, your flat spots may be outside of what you can actually achieve by reloading but if you're consistently getting your very low SD numbers then then it could well be a very intriguing test to try I guess the the issue, or well, a possible issue with with using that method, might be that um, it relies on your chronograph giving you dead on results. Um, you know, some some of the sort of older types of chronograph are not necessarily super reliable, depending mm. on weather conditions that you're using them in. I but if you if you had a, a chronograph that was giving you, you know, very very accurate readings, that could could be a pretty useful tool. Yeah, and, and look, he was, um, I believe he was using Magneto Speed uh, V3, uh, and I certainly know within that world there's only really two two chronographs that are counting at the moment, which are the Lab Radars and the Magnetos. What are you using, uh, Jason, in your world? Uh, okay, so when we were doing load development for the state team rifles, um, yep. we were using Lab Radars. Okay. Um, yep. How do they go for you? They're pretty good. Yeah. Um, a little bit... F- uh, fiddly getting them set up to pick up the shots properly. Okay. Um, but that's partly to do with the way that our mounds are set up as well. So we tend to have the muzzle hanging over the mound so that the sound doesn't reflect backwards at everyone. Gotcha. So yeah, you've got right. to try and get that. Basically, you have to sit on a, a, a bank and up next to the barrel. So they're very accurate and they're very good. A um, little bit of stuffing around getting them set up. But yeah, no, not yeah. bad. I imagine that would come in time if you got to know them really well and yeah. give a quick process to set them up. Yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we had a guy out the other the other day. Um yeah, shooting big cow stuff and he was using Labrador and it seemed to be giving him really good um information. It only had a, like a thirty second window on it though to take your shot. Is that you can change that. You can change that. Yes. Okay, that was just how he said yeah, it. Yeah, they they he go was in... limited on batteries, so I think <laughs> that may have had a factor to do with it. Yeah, they switch into sleep mode pretty quickly. Okay. Um, but you can actually turn that off. Right. Uh, so they stay on all the time. And there's a couple of different modes of, of the way that they um pick up yep. the um uh, flight of the projectile as well. So yeah, okay, yes. Yep. So I mean, they they seem interesting, and I think I think that was the the point, Andrew, that that Scott made is that the the technology is that is is further along now that your your chronographs seem to be quite reliable in that regard, and we certainly don't see that much variation shot to shot as much as perhaps some older stuff. Um, or clarified as older, more consumer based stuff. Mm. 
um, which is so you know, readily available, like the magnetos and the, the labradars. The magnetos so. are pretty good too. I've seen um, some threads on a couple of forums I'm on where people have back-to-back tested them. I've seen a few, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. they've run the magneto and the labradar at the same time, yep. and they were reading within five or six feet per second of each other consistently. Yeah, that, the the tests I've seen mirror that as well, Jason, is yeah. where um, they will read different speeds, yep. but they will read consistently different speeds. That's right, yeah. Uh, on every shot. Um, yep. So that, which, you know, is a good sign. Of course, one's attached to the barrel, one's slightly downrange by yep. what, foot or something. So, yep. um, you know, they're, they're probably going to be some level of different speeds uh, accounted for in that. But yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to see those too. So I haven't I haven't tried Scott's method there. Um, you really you know want to have your head down on the reloading side of things and be really focused on doing so and getting that that SDs down. Do you guys pay any attention to SD at all? Uh, some guys do. Um, yep. There's some guys that get right into it um, and that they'll only make loads that shoot with low SDs and ESs and so on. Mm-hmm. I've never tested mine. So you wouldn't you wouldn't know what yours are doing. I don't know what mine are doing. Yep. Um, and like I say, I only care what they do at the other end of the range. Sure, yeah, um, the bullet doesn't lie. Uh, the same goes. We're sort of fortunate too with our targets that they have got the rings on them, so we know um, if a, if a gun's holding good elevation, then we don't really have to test any further than that. If it can put ten shots in the yeah in the X ring or X ring vertical or whatever, yep. um, then we don't really worry about it. So they got to do what you need to do. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. So I guess the other question I've got for you, Jace, is uh, is there any difference in equipment from the F-Class side of things across the PRS side of things, which I guess we're more into the extreme long-range stuff, to, you know, is it, you're using what, RCBS rock chuckers as a standard or the force yeah, I mean, coaxial? I'm, I'm just having a look around in here now and everything looks pretty familiar. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we look to be using the same kind of stuff, reading dies and... Uh, I use competition dies um, mm-hmm. because I like them, um, not because they're better than the S-Type or anything like that, but that's the set that I bought. Yep. Um, some guys are using uh, Wilson dies and oh, yeah. uh, yep. Arbor presses and stuff like that. Yeah, now tell, um, tell us about an Arbor press. Do you know much about them? Yeah, so, the difference? Yeah, so an Arbor press basically stands on a uh, an adjustable height shaft and the die doesn't screw in to the press it's free stands on a base underneath the press okay. and and the ram actually comes down on top of the die and mostly they're just for seating um projectiles and neck sizing mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think you can full length size in an arbor press yeah i think you'd be struggling um just in that you don't have the sort of leverage yeah and i mean like i've used them a few times with you know particularly sort of target orientated ammunition and yeah it's only been neck sizing and seating operations but the i guess the concept of it is reducing any kind of run out or yeah well they they run in a dead straight line so yeah um yeah good in that respect and you can run um uh, gauges and stuff on them for seating pressure and all that kind of stuff too so handy in that way um but yeah if you want a full length size you still have to use a conventional press they are quite time consuming as well you know, in comparison to using a standard press in that, you know, it's a lot more time consuming taking a case in and out of the die okay. than, you know, using a standard press with a shell holder. Yeah, we had the, um, when we had the uh, F-Class Nationals at Lower Light in May, 
we did uh, all of our final loading um, on the night before. Um, we seated all of the bullets along in the cases before we travelled down there and then reseated them. And that is one of the things with those Wilson dies is that um, if it's been made specifically to your case, they do tend to get stuck in there after you've seated a projectile because the because they're such a fine fit. Yeah. Okay. Um, they sort of suction themselves in there. Yeah. Well. Wow. And they can be a bit of a pain to get them out. So, um, yeah, it's a bit fiddly in that respect. So. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. And the um, it's interesting you you travel down there with them seated along. And then you tidy them up. Have you found that they will, they will shift so in transit? One of the things, yes, they can shift in transit. We run pretty light neck tension normally, mm-hmm. um, because we're only single feeding. We don't have to run high neck tension. Yeah. The other thing too is that if you uh, make some ammo this week, and you don't shoot it for three weeks, the cases and the projectiles have a chemical reaction with each other. And they can actually um, bond themselves together um, with that reaction, and they actually increase the neck tension by quite a lot. So, okay. Um, so that's why I was saying before I only ever load on a Friday night if I'm shooting Saturday. Yeah. Um, because that's consistent. If I load for three weeks from now, and then I don't have enough ammo, and I load load again tonight, and I'm going to shoot tomorrow two lots of ammo. I'm going to have two different results, so... Yeah, wow. Or could have. So could have, yeah. yeah. So it's an elimination of a variation again, so... Yeah, okay. And so yeah. you, you talk about... Um, You've mentioned neck tension a number of times mm. as being a significant factor in what you're doing. Yes. Um, what I guess it'd be interesting to find out how you've come to that sort of conclusion and then what you go about to sort of ensure that's consistent. Yep. Um, so coming to the conclusion was basically... Uh, a lot of reading. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I obviously took a long time to get to the stage that I'm at with reloading now. And um, basically every night I used to sit at, at the kitchen table and grab the book we mentioned earlier or mm-hmm. and some other literature and talking to other guys in uh, the, uh, the target shooting community. And uh, we've actually tried with... Uh, pre-made ammo that's been sitting around for a while and you can actually feel when you if you seat them long and go to reseat them you can actually feel that that contact that they're harder to push in and mm-hmm. you've got to actually break that uh that uh, connection between the case neck and the and the projectile so it is noticeable you can feel it even without measuring equipment sure yeah um so yeah one of the things that was mentioned to me by the other guys at the club as well was to watch out for so Hmm, interesting, interesting. And so how do you go about um, about ensuring you've got similar neck tension? You said um, you... Ne- I neck turn. Neck turn is the word I'm looking yep. for. So yep. I'll... I'll s- that port kicking in. I'll skim turn uh, all the brass, only just taking just enough off so that it... Uh, so that it basically would basically clean, well, 70% of the material off the outside of the neck. Yep. Um, I don't turn it all the way because I've got a no-turn chamber, so I don't have to. Uh, but then after a few more firings, um, I'll skim it again. So okay. just uh, any high spots because there's material that m- material moves up into the neck as well from the shoulder and you want to just re-skim that back out and make sure it's all, all nice and neat. Um, the other thing is um, uh, obviously annealing, which like I mentioned before, I don't do yep. uh, because I don't have an annealer. Um, that's something that is key. 
Um, and just double checking and measuring things. Um, new batch of brass, you might skim turn that. I'm not, I'm not turning to a set thickness. I'm just skim turning. So if you get a new batch of brass, they might be thinner in the neck. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So you want to make sure that your bushing is still going to be adequate to either have enough or or not too much neck tension. Yeah, nice. Mm. Yeah, okay, cool. It's um, Andrew, have you done a bit with neck turning? Is that? Yeah, look, I have. I've, I've, you know, I've had several rifles that have sort of, you know, it's been necessary, and they're a tight neck chamber, so you can't just load and shoot. You have to actually turn to a specific size. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um. And that's what you were saying, Jason, before with the yeah. no no turn chamber. You can put anything in there, and you go. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Look, I, I've had, I guess, no standout results from from using brass that's been you know fairly heavily neck turned. I mean, uh, two rifles that stick in my mind are uh, some six mil BRs that I've run. Mm-hmm. One was a two six eight, I think it was neck, and the other was a two seven two. Um, so you know, fairly large difference. Yeah. And yeah. To be honest, I've I noticed absolutely zero difference in performance from the tight neck chamber than the standard. Mm. Um, I think it, you know, if you've got brass that is not necessarily too consistent in the neck, then it would you know could give you a definite advantage. Sure. Yep. Um, but you know, running the top good, you know, the brass like the Lapua brass and Norma brass, I've, I've found it hasn't really given me a huge or noticeable advantage. But like Jay sort of said before, it, it's variable reduction um, yeah and you know the more consistent you can make every every shot to the last well you know the less uh you know you're going to have on target so mm. it can't hurt i don't think you know if you're doing it correctly if, you, if you're doing it incorrectly it could certainly be detrimental yeah and i've seen people do that where they've had the mandrel too tight or too loose and so it's been achieving nothing but if you're doing it right i don't really see a negative in it yeah it- you you would say the same. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Um, uh, yeah, uh, anything that you can do to to um, increase consistency and reduce variation is going to be a bonus. It just depends on whether you're willing to sit there and do the work because it takes ages to do it. Um, I've heard that. Yeah, um, we did uh, six hundred cases twice for the state team in a very short period of time. Um, and uh, we'll probably have to do the same thing again next year. <laughs> um, the reason we did those cases, we built three rifles specifically for that competition. Yeah, okay. Uh, all with the same chambers, uh, with the same everything, and they all actually tuned to exactly the same load, surprisingly. Well, that's convenient. Well, yeah, it was very convenient. Cause, <laughs> Makes and life easier. We could run any ammo in any rifle. And it all worked. And it all worked perfectly. So, yeah, good. Um, the other thing too with uh, neck turning, and I said before, I don't have a turn chamber. I do have a uh, a tight chamber. It's a runs a three forty neck. The reason, or one of the good things about that and neck turning is, I don't think my brass quite expands as much. Yeah, gotcha. Um, so yep. it doesn't get worked as hard um, either. So uh, yeah, handy. I guess as a a point, you've got to be careful, and <clears throat> you've got to ensure you've got actually adequate clearance between the neck or the outside of the neck and the the chamber yeah in that if you don't it, your pressures can go through the roof because basically the brass needs to expand a certain amount to let the projectile out mm-hmm. uh, and say if you're using a, a tight neck chamber and you don't turn your brass down enough you might be able to chamber the live round okay but 
when it comes to firing, basically it's not not enough room for it to expand to allow the bullet out, so your pressures can just be sky high. Mm. Like it has to be able to open up enough to let the bullet out. I had a question for you then on that one. Um, a, a, a guy I know had a triple two, um, and I don't remember who it was built by, but it was it was setups, and and this is the best explanation. But this is going back a few years as well, where you didn't need a resizing die for the brass, so where it would expand to, you could basically put a projectile back in and go again. Now, is this something you've heard of, Andrew, or do I need to go seek some clarification on that? Or Yeah, pretty much. That doesn't really make a lot of technical sense. No. Because if you've got a got a chamber that's uh, effectively the same dimensions as a resizing die, mm. I'm not quite sure how that's going to work as far as... Uh, yeah, clearance and yeah, needs yeah, to be a the certain ammo, size. The projectile was was quite, um, say, loose in the case as it was. It was a single shot uh, rifle, and so you you weren't talk, talking about having other ammo in the magazine or anything. But um, yeah, it was it was adamant. It was only, only all you had to do was seat seat ammo, and away you go again. So yeah, I know with my ammo, if I um, have a fired case and I leave a primer in and I push a projectile into the neck it will actually seal air in there and I can I can actually compress that air in there and the projectile will pop back out under the pressure so okay my necks aren't expanding much but they're expanding enough to let that go but yeah I've, mm. what you're talking about there I've never heard of that before no, no I, look, I, I would imagine for that to to happen yeah, you know, the pressures when he's firing must be super high yeah. Because it would be, you know, you're not talking, you'd be under a thou of clearance, I would imagine, mm. overall, not not let alone either side of the neck. So, yeah, it could be. If it's a thou, they generally spring back a thou. They go out and then they yep. spring back a thou to whatever they expanded to. So, yep. if he's only got a thou clearance and expanding back a thou, that would explain it. But but that would also, you're not, not allowed a lot of clearance there. No. For, mm. So, no. I, hence, I imagine the pressure would be up. I wouldn't be keen on firing it. Yeah, okay. No. Well, it's an interesting one. I'll see if I can find some more information about that particular mm. rifle. Um, I remember he said who built it and the details of it, and the name was significant enough to remember, but I don't recall it now. We're going back a number of years. So, anyway, I'll see if I can find some more info mm. on that one. Interesting, interesting one to bring up. So, very good. Um I did have one more question for you out of that. Yes. And I don't recall what it was. Well, that sucks. We're on fire. Oh, eh? Greg's here. Hi, Greg. <laughs> yeah, good <day>, fellas. <laughs> Sorry, I just woke up and there was a podcast going on. <laughs> one of the other things you mentioned, Jason, was about batching items. Yes. Can you, for those who are not familiar with that concept and perhaps to the extent that it can be done to, I mean, I've heard of people batching primers. So can you let us know what it is and then how uh, how it affects what you do reloading-wise? There are people, strange people, that that weigh primers. Left-handers. And, and they're deadly serious and they reckon it makes a difference. I don't know how it could, but uh, they possibly are left-handed, Greg. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there, there are people that do that kind of thing. Uh, I don't, but what I do batch is uh, projectiles. And I'll always try and buy a thousand of at, at a time or two boxes of 500 of the same batch number. Um, and there's a reason for that. In in burgers, have a little problem sometimes between batches where 
The base to ogive measurement on the projectiles that I use uh, can vary by up to 80 thou. Wow. So you can imagine right. if you've got a, a short batch and you're running 10 thou jump and then you get a long batch and mm. you, you're no longer running 10 thou jump, you're jammed. <laughs> and mm. I, I got caught out because I didn't check a new batch and uh, I went from 10 thou jump to 20 thou jam. So um, you've got to do that. Every new batch of projectiles on the Hornady IL gauge with your modified case and recheck and remeasure your seating depth because it will change. Guarantee it. Um, the other thing that I do within that batch is I'll batch the projectiles into 1,000 increments, which probably a bit anal. Um, I generally only do it for... Well, you do shoot F-class. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'll generally only do that for bigger competitions, um, just normal club shoots. I don't really worry about it. But once you've done a box of 500, they're done. So, mm. um, yeah, so they'll go in 1,000 increments so if if one measures one measurement if it's within a, a thou of that up it goes in if it's more than a thou longer than that it goes into the next batch so um and obviously buy powder in the biggest quantities you can buy it in uh, so you're not changing lot numbers that will change your velocities most definitely um doesn't matter what powder you buy um so yeah anything you do try and get it all from the same same batch manufactured in the same machines on the same day and, and so on. So, mm. You give me a million dollar idea in there. Yeah. Burger jam. Burger jam. Burger jam. Wouldn't that be good? sensation. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, cheeseburger jam and hamburg. But it would vary from burger to burger, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, damn. Well done, Noble. Well done. I'm glad we're talking about cheeseburgers. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to that. Anyway, oh, good. And so uh, for you, Jace, up next on the F-Class calendar, what's happening? Because I know you did pretty bloody well at the last shoot, didn't you? Yeah, I did better than I expected to be doing. Um, we obviously, How did you go? Uh, well, at the uh, F-Class Nationals first, the uh, South Australian standard team won that. Well done. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have a, a very, very good win coach. Um, something to explain with F-Class teams is that you have a win coach and you have four or five, we have five shooters, mm -hmm. and you're just in charge of firing the rifle consistently and the win coach is making all the win calls and telling you when to fire. Yeah, so right. it's like a spotter and shooter scenario. Um yeah, we were lucky to have Malcolm Hill as our coach. Um, he's a better win reader than anyone I know. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, we uh, he and I managed to get to top off rifle, which is the highest scoring shooter coach combination for the whole competition of all of the shooters. So wow, well uh, done. in F standard. So that was uh, that was at the start of the week we had that, and then following on to that was the. South Australian Queens, which is the state titles, yep. um, which they have a lead-up event, which I didn't shoot in, which was the uh, Wednesday, Thursday, because I was knackered from the teams. And, uh, you mean it wasn't up to your standard, is what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just and, uh, but then I didn't did... Didn't the practice. <laughs> I did shoot in the actual Queens event um, and managed to be as high as third... By the end of the second day, but end up finishing up sixth out of about forty shooters, 
Um, yeah. And from all over Australia too. It wasn't just people within the state. So I was very happy with that. It was my first Queen. So. Yeah, congratulations, yeah, mate. Thank That's you. excellent. What's yeah. on the calendar upcoming? Up and coming, we've got... Uh, uh, we've got uh, a few teams events, which are just normal club into club ones. Um, we've got a prize meeting at Maitland in September, which I'm going to. Yep. Um, and then we've got a couple more prize meetings, one at Lower Light, which they call the uh, DRA One, which is District Rifle Association One prize meeting, mm-hmm. which I won last year. Um, so hoping to defending the title this yeah, time. Yeah, hoping yeah. hoping to take it out again. Um, there's a one at Kapunda as well coming up as well. Do you want so. to throw down any words of uh, you know, to your com- potential competitors? Oh, I hope they all shoot ones and twos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so do we. So do we. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good. We were reading a win reading book the other uh, last week. I won't mention the title because we'll take the piss out of it a little bit. But in one aspect of the win reading book, the guy was talking about potential on an F-class shoot um, that someone may be telling their win their shooter some number, whispering it in their ear, and then yelling out some other completely wrong number, yes. uh, just to throw off the teams <laughs> around them. Is this does this happen? It 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 does. <laughs> it does. And the other thing that the wind coaches do is they might put on five minutes of right wind, and then they'll tell you quietly to hold five minutes left on the target. <laughs> And and someone might be watching him wind that wind and they'll put that wind on and <laughs> so, you guys are so devious. Yes. yes <laughs> very, very sneaky. <laughs> so an event well shot by ninjas. Yeah, pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> nice, nice. Oh, awesome guys. Well, hopefully we've uh, we've covered and debated some uh, some interesting topics about reloading. Uh, of course, guys who are listening, send us your questions. Uh, no doubt, at some point in the future, Jason will be back and uh, we'll hit them up. Uh, no doubt, or we'll put them to uh, to uh, Greg, who's uh, certainly had the uh, you know, majority of the input tonight. Yeah, I'm probably going to lose both boys. <laughs> <laughs> And so, um, yeah, guys, it'd be uh, it'd be great to hear from you, Jason. Thank you so much for coming in tonight and sharing your wisdom and uh, and your experience, and also good, really good luck with uh, with everything. Don't listen to those dodgy wind callers who tell you the wrong thing. All right, keep an eye out for them. No um, and uh, yeah, we wish you all the best of luck uh, with what you're doing. Um, and we're just glad you're not left-handed. No, no, it's me too. I couldn't handle it if I was left-handed. <laughs> good. And uh, oh, thanks for having me tonight too, guys. Ah, oh, you're welcome, mate. Now we got one last thing to uh, to throw to you guys. Which is our segment, which is in our third um, third week or third episode, uh, which is the "Would you rather" question. So, given the topic of um, of reloading this evening, and this will certainly divide out the purpose of use of that reloading. Would you rather, Jason? We'll put it to you first. Would you rather load off, go to the effort of loading off a powder thrower and on manual scales and doing all the work and trickling and bits and pieces but guaranteed perfect loads every time or would you just use a charge master and have a lot, lot less effort involved mm. it depends on what no the... no it does not depend <laughs> it is right now would you rather one or the other I'll use a charge master there we go charge master Andrew yeah I think that goes without saying Charge master. master. Yeah, Greg? I'll go the other way. You're going the other way. So you're going to take the time to load and do all yeah, that sort of gear to, to shoot your foxes at 100 metres with a yeah, thermal? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I, can, I can pick an eyeball. No, <laughs> okay. no, it's... Um, no, I, I would. Yeah, I'd, you I'd, would? I'd, I'd, yeah. 
Yeah. You find it relaxing and, yeah. and yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. Or you'd pay someone to do it's it. It's just one thing I don't have to yeah. be worried about in my reloading. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd like to agree with you, Greg. I'd like to say that I'd go down that path of, of powder throwing and, and doing it on a manual scale. But you don't. So I will. I'll agree with you. Hmm. I'd prefer to go that way because uh, I'm, I'm after my uh, – visualizing of the variation in extreme spread last week and, and that lesson being directly in front of me, um, see the value. Mm. Certainly. I mean, not that I didn't see the value before, but it really hit home for me and the other guys there that, that we could measure it and it was a measurable difference. Especially on a mile. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. With a thermal on a fox. Didn't he get the best results by throwing from a charge master? Yeah. That was my <laughs> recollection of what you said. <laughs> What he got was uh, he got the best results from being really consistent and getting very repeatable um, <laughs> charges. On a so, charge master. Hey, hey, if you want to limit this to a mile, we can, but I want to take it further than that, all right? So you always talk within your limits. But we've seen those limitations on the charge master, seen the data on it. And anyway, this is the end of the episode. So, guys, we're going to put that up and listen to you, and I'm going to you know, sort of uh, cull this off now. I might even edit it short. Jason, thank you very much for coming in. <laughs> Craig and Andrew, always a pleasure. And uh, we will... Um, uh, see all the guys who are up in Darwin this weekend. We'll catch up with you guys there. And uh, and Fat Jesus, we're bringing your mug. And uh, because Jared's got into three pieces, I'm going to try and drop it off the plane into about four or five pieces or more. Take some glue. <laughs> Take some glue. Thanks, guys, for listening. Thanks, STS, for supporting us. And uh, we'll chat to you guys again soon. Thanks for listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast. To continue the discussion, check out our Facebook page. And for more information, head to our website, www.precisionshootingpodcast.com.au. This episode was brought to you by STS Steel Targets, premium shooting targets and accessories.